would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read the uh, introductory words of verses 1 and 2 before I read verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This morning we come to the third of these seven characteristics upon which our Lord Jesus pronounces blessing. And uh, last week when I was down in Englewood, I preached uh, on the second of the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn. And I tried to frame it within the context of the whole uh, seven and their interrelatedness. And uh, uh, I've been given a lot of thought how I can best explain it. And I told them it's sort of like what Calvin mentions in the Institutes as he begins it. He begins it very interestingly. He begins with the thought that there's two knowledge, two areas of knowledge that we should be seeking. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He goes on to say it's hard to know which has the priority, which you ought to be seeking first, to know God or to know yourself. And of course, you know, we think it has to be to know God first and foremost. But Calvin says, oh sure, that's true. It's in the light of who God is we come to see ourselves. But in a sense, if we're so happy with ourselves, if we're so satisfied with ourselves, why do we need God? We oftentimes won't seek Him. Oftentimes we won't have, feel any need for Him because we're so self-satisfied. We're so self-content. And it seems to me that these Beatitudes are meant to strike a death blow to self. To self, our sense of self and the worth of ourselves, the, the absorption with ourselves, the rights that we think we have, that we need to always be asserting. And there's a real sense in which these Beatitudes form something like an inverted pyramid. You know, a pyramid would have uh, you know, steps that would lead up to a, a pinnacle point, turn it upside down, and you have steps that lead down to the bottom part. And leave, it's the first three of these Beatitudes that really leave us going downward into a sense of that we have no rights. We have nothing to glory in. We have nothing to pride ourselves in. Um, it leads us to humbling self-awareness. A humbling self-awareness in which we're stripped of all sense of exalted self-worth. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. Nobody's garbage. We all have value and we all have worth. Jesus says, are you not of greater value than many sparrows? So we're not worthless. And sometimes we think we're just so worthy of almost everything and anything that we just have an exalted sense of self-worth. We don't need God. We have ourselves. These are beatitudes that strip us of an indifferent self-absorption. And we're so caught up with ourselves and we don't really think about the world around us. We don't think of the plight of the world around us and the needs of the world around us and the injustices of the world around us. So we don't sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in the land that Ezekiel says is part and parcel of what righteous people do. We don't do that. We're too caught up with ourselves to think about the world. And then we're too caught up with ourselves and our rights so that we're just angry and indignant when anybody does us wrong. 
And we need to have that delta death blow too, and that's where meekness comes in. It really deals with that absorption with our rights, our sense that you know, we have a right to revenge and we have a right to just be self-absorbed and self-willed and self-determined and have ill will towards others and anger, anger towards God and the whole business that so much characterizes us as fallen human beings. I think these Beatitudes come they strip us of our proud self-life so that we can get out of ourselves and look to God for righteousness. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll never hunger and thirst for righteousness if you think you have it made, if you think everything's good and right with yourself. And it says we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we, we learn new ways, and new ways that walk, and ways of mercy that Jesus commands, and purity that Jesus says, the blessed are the pure, that they will see God in peaceableness. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. To change the image, not so much of an inverted pyramid, it's, it's kind of like military basic training, I'm sorry, marine basic training. Your dad would be proud of me for saying that. Marine basic training. What happens in marine basic training? You can tell us. Andrew, they know you're so flabby and you're so caught up with the things of the world. Not you. I'm saying the ravage recruit. Just not thinking marine way. You're thinking the things of the world. You're absorbed with your little devices and your television and all of your frills and uh, you know, chowing down the, the beer and the, the pizza. And you don't have a disciplined life. And so the whole thing that the Marines are concerned to do, they tell you, we're going to break you down <laughs> so that we can build you up. And you learn marine ways. You learn not to think about the ways of the world. There's a sense in which God needs to break us down. So we begin to be built up in His ways. We begin to learn His ways. And once we begin to be dissatisfied with ourselves and become fully convinced that our greatest need can only be supplied by God and not within or by others, we'll simply be content with who and what we are being where we are and will never aspire to Jesus' way of blessedness. Well, the first two of these Beatitudes we've looked at, and uh, uh, we've got some assistance from the 61st chapter of Isaiah that speaks both of being poor and mourning. And Jesus, the Son of God, read that passage in the synagogue of Nazareth, and he said, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the one who comes, who's anointed with the Spirit to what? Preach good news to the poor and to bring comfort to the mourners. And now this morning, with the subject of this third beatitude, we don't have to go to search very far perhaps in the Old Testament, as to what might be the source of the statement. I really think Isaiah 61 does account for blessed are the poor in spirit and those that mourn. But it's actually Psalm 37 that the words are found. Psalm 37 and verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the land. It adds, delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And so it has to be to this psalm that we have to have recourse throughout our study this morning. And so we're going to begin there with the background to the words. We're going to try to say something about what it is that Psalm 37 is teaching us and why it says in Psalm 37 verse 11, that the meek shall inherit the land. And then we're going to say something about the benefit that uh, this meekness brings what are the actions of the meek? And what are the benefits that, are, uh, that result from meekness? Do we need less or more meekness in the world? <laughs> Do we have enough already? You know, Jackie DeShannon sang the Burt Bacharach song, What the World Doesn't Need Another Mountain, 
The world doesn't need a bunch of things. We all need love. I don't disagree with that. But I don't think the world needs more proud, arrogant, self-absorbed, self-centered people. I think the world needs a whole bunch more meek folk who are able to manifest something of the meekness and gentleness of Christ in our attitudes, our bearing, our reactions, our responses. The world needs not just love, it needs meekness. It needs meekness to be displayed by those who profess to be the disciples of the Lamb. And then we'll say something about the blessedness of these words. Jesus tells us they will inherit the earth. So first of all, the background of the psalm. The psalm 37, it's an acrostic psalm. I mentioned that in the reading. It's also what usually would be called a wisdom psalm. It's designed to teach us wisdom, how to live. And um, it's something that's encouraging those that read it or sing the words of this psalm to simply be careful that we don't become overwhelmed with anger, bitterness, disappointment, distress that's found in the reality that everything around us cries out injustice. Everything around us says it's wrong. When is this going to get right, by the way? And it's not just that fact that sin and misery around the world in general is vexing and troubling. But we're affected by it inwardly and personally. We don't live life at a distance. We live life in the world, among the sinners of this world. And we're tempted again and again and again to be stirred up in our own souls, to be angry about the things that seem to be so unfair, not just unfair to them, but unfair to us, unfair to the people that we love. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. What's the value in serving God anyway? When everything in life seems so disordered, everything seems to favor the most violent evil of people in the world. Why not just join them? This is a psalm that looks reality in the eye. It doesn't flinch. Verse 12 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. You ever people gnash their teeth at you because of you're a Christian and things you believe? Remember when the guy that I was riding to work with one day found out what I believed about certain things? And he just got riled up. I thought the car was going to crash. He got so angry at me, I thought he was going to kick me out of the car. It's interesting. I had to back away and not mention anything, but I prayed for that man. And then it was months later, one of the years later, it was months later. His brother walks into our church. <laughs> his brother became a Christian. God saved his brother. I don't know if he ever saved Paul. But he saved his brother. And then he became part of our church. And I figured, well, he had more opportunity to witness to him at Thanksgiving or other occasions. As a family member, as a brother, than I would get thrown out of his car. So <laughs> It's how interesting how God works. But the reality is we live in a world where people will gnash their teeth at us with anger because we, who are what we are. They hate our character. They hate our message. They hate our God. They hate the things that we believe. It goes on to say in verse 14, the wicked draws the sword and bends their bows. That's warfare, folks. To bring down the poor and needy. To slay those whose way is upright. And you see, when we face the reality of what life in a fallen world is really like, when we see it personally, it does provoke 
I don't know what ethnicity is proper to use at this point. Our Irish, our Jewish. Me, it's a Jew. I'm a Jew, so I say that it disturbs my sense of Jewish justice when I see all the wrongs that exist in the world. And you want to just get even. You want to retaliate. You want to fight fire with fire. You want to respond in bitterness and in wrath. You want to act just like they do. Draw out the sword and start slashing. Bend the bow. Start sh- yeah. I will mention the modern weaponry we have that can bring so much destruction. We just want to slay them. We just want to get back at them. Returning evil for evil. That's how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the face of the very real evils and very real temptations of such provocations that we so desperately stand in need of seeing the image of Jesus. I am meek and lowly among you. The grace of meekness is so important. You see, meekness is a quality that actually the Greek society around Jesus and his disciples viewed as a contemptible thing. They viewed it as weakness. But the point is meekness is not weakness. It's not cowardice. It's not inaction. It's not indifference to the evils that are committed against us. It's not sounding a retreat. But it's a recognition that it's easy to get angry. It's easy to retaliate. But what is it going to do but make you bitter? It's not going to solve anything. It's not going to cure anything. It's not going to make wicked people righteous. Just returning evil to eat with evil. We're to overcome evil with good. Jesus came into the world of sin and injustice and unrighteousness. And he triumphed not by stamping over his enemies. He triumphed in weakness, taking the way of the Lamb. The world rejected him. He was despised and rejected among men. Man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He said, they hated me without a cause. They hated me freely. There was no reason for it. No hatred. No rational reason why the Son of God should have been hated. He was in the world that he made. And the world that he made rejected him. He came among his own people. And his own people would not receive him. Yet the one who was crucified in weakness was raised in power and was set at the right hand of the majesty on high. And from the throne of Christ's glory, he's bringing about a revolution in our world through the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel, we underestimate it, folks. We really do. Because we live in a world in which... You know, people in high places that, commu- that maybe run communications industries have no place for it. Maybe that's changing a little bit in the modern world. How long it lasts, I don't know. But the point of it is, God says it's his power for salvation. It's his power for salvation. And when you think everything is lost and society is just going in ways of just obliterating Christianity, all of a sudden you read that there's more churches growing in Brazil that are sound, stable churches that love biblical religion and they love preaching. And you read about the African 
national pastors conferences that meet throughout the nation and where people who minister in churches are coming and hungering for the word and going back to their churches. You see churches throughout Zambia, throughout the, the southern cone of, of, of our world today, which they're sending missionaries out. Well, the, church, the nations that formerly did are just not seeing anything in, but churches that are folding. And yet God says, okay, okay. There's a world to win. Not just the nations where Christianity formerly were the places that the missionaries went from. If, if, if the work of the gospel is rejected in one place, Jesus says, take the dust from your feet and go to the next city and proclaim there. And it seems that that's what God does. And it's not that God's not working in the world. He might not be working in our circles the way we'd like to see him work. Man, we got a good church here. Why don't people recognize it? Why do people flood to come in? Why do we have so many empty seats in a small room? Now people have the things that they want and they have their own desires, but God is able through his simple word to bring you out this morning. And you want nothing you know, you're not coming here because I'm good looking. You're not coming here because I'm talented in some way. You expect me to entertain you in any way? If you're here this morning, it's because you love God's Word. And you love the God of the Word. And you want to learn the ways of the Lord. And if God is able to make you that way, and He's able to make me that way, He's able to multiply what He's done in my life and your life in, in ways that will astound us. But don't lose heart. And don't think everything's in an end. Don't become bitter. Be meek. And meek means that you're not self-willed. You say, it's not going accordance to the way I planned. Man, I went into the ministry 40 years ago and I had different plans about how my life would look. I had different plans of how the church would be and it hasn't been realized and so I'm just going to crawl up and I'm going to wither. You can do that. You can become bitter. But you say, no Lord, you have lessons for me to learn that maybe I've not learned yet. You have lessons for this assembly to learn that maybe we've not learned yet. It's not what we have any right to expect or claim from God that He will do. As we stand before Him, not being self-willed, but to say, not my will, but yours be done. To submit to His will. To be a people who know that God's not out of the picture. He's smack dab right in the middle of the picture. And he's chosen this path for us. Whatever path we're on, whatever way our life is going, God in his own wisdom has led us down that path. It might not have been the way we would have chosen, but it's the way he has chosen. And the way he has chosen, at the end of the day, will be the best. That's what meekness is. That's what meekness is. Meekness faces the provocations that exist in a fallen world. Not with self-will towards God, but saying, your will be done. Not having a clenched fist saying, this seems so unfair. Saying, Lord, you know best. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for exactly what you've done in my life. Thank you, Lord. It would have ruined me to have a big church in my 20s or 30s. It would have simply gone to my head. I'd be happy going to heaven knowing that my life has meant something. For the small group of people that meet here, the fact that we've been through the third generation of professing Christians that we've seen baptized. I mean, it's small, 
But it's not insignificant. If there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents, we've done something meaningful here. We've not wasted our lives. We've not wasted our time. And a spirit of meekness simply would say, Lord, we just surrender to your, your wisdom. And it's good. It's good. And then we'll face all the people that have provoked us and all the people that have sought to do us dirty. In the midst of all of the tumult and turbulence of an unjust world, we will not respond with ill will towards others. No self-will before God, no ill will towards others. We'll be a people of goodwill. We'll pray for those who are our enemies. Not to pray the imprecatory psalms. I mean, that would be easy. That would be easy. Lord, condemn them, silence them, smash them to smithereens. Oh yeah, we'd love that. What did Jesus pray from the cross? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And when you really think about it, they don't get forgiven just because Jesus prayed for their forgiveness. They get, pray, they get forgiven when they believe. So Jesus was praying for their faith. Jesus was praying for exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter rose in the midst of that great throng and preached Jesus to them and 3,000 souls believed. When have we seen 3,000 souls come to faith? Well, when have we seen Jesus pray upon the earth for people's salvation? The very people he prayed for were the people that assented to his death. And yet, days later, they're brought into his kingdom. Because Jesus intercedes. Jesus prays. And his prayers are heard. God's power can work in similar ways. And we're to desire the salvation of people. Not their ill, their good. Their highest blessing. That's what it means to love our enemy. It doesn't mean we feel good about them. Don't think that you have to feel good about people that are treating you ill. You want their good. You say it's a pity that they're so blind. It, it breaks my heart that they have no understanding of what their end is. And read the psalm and you'll see that. They seem to be having everything go their way, but that's only for a season. Their fall's going to come. God's justice will be served. But as for us, we're going to face every situation in life knowing, number one, God's in it. And we need to submit to Him. We cannot react with hostility towards Him or say, Lord, you did something wrong for me being here. Lord, I prayed about it. How do I buy that house with all the problems when I prayed about it? I've seen Christians say that. And they play their hearts and minds. And somehow the devil made them buy the house. I mean, God, God, God descended from his throne. Satan got upon the throne. They went that path. No. Where in the scriptures does it say you're never going to get by a lemon for a car? You're never going to have troubles and problems in the world. The word of God says the exact opposite. It says in the world you will have tribulation. Don't say you won't. God's immunized you from making a decision that is bad. I know you're hurting. Michael, you're looking to buy a house and you're saying, I'm hoping that God will lead me in the right way. The pastor's telling me i got no absolute promise that that will be true. But certainly we'll pray for you, brother. I'm afraid that God will give you the best of all places to buy. 
But if he doesn't, then it's something you recognize he has a lesson to teach you in the midst of that. And you don't become morose, and you don't become bitter, and you don't become poor me, and you don't engage in self-pity. You embrace it as from the hand of God. You submit to the God of your salvation. You hang in there with Him, not against Him. He will act. He will do good. He will give you the desires of your heart. That's what the psalm says. He won't mock you. He's your Lord. Wait patiently for Him. That's what the psalm says. Wait patiently for Him. Trust Him. Delight in Him. Commit your way to Him. That's something of the background. You can't defeat a Christian. We triumph in all conditions, in all situations, because God is who He is. His promises are what they are, and nothing could ever separate us from His love in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then there are the benefits of this grace of meekness. Again, it's meekness that's exemplified. First and foremost, by Jesus. And it's a grace that will keep us happy. Again, in all seasons and in all conditions. Every situation of injustice and outrage we experience in this life will not tear us down. It will only serve to build us up. Again, think of Jesus in the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If that's the prayer of the Son of God, it should be the prayer of his followers. We're not called upon to die for the sins of the world. Wouldn't, our death would not affect any, any sin but our own. But Jesus bore the weight of the sin of the world, and he did it with his human soul saying... If anything other way is possible, let it be. But he endures that sense of God forsakenness, knowing that ultimately his God did not abandon him. Though the sense was, I'm abandoned. Yet the Father never loved him so greatly as when he died for the sins of the, his people. And so, with respect to living in this world of, of sin and injustice, we can face the slings and arrows, as it says in Hamlet, of outrageous fortune, without taking up arms against the sea of troubles. We'll not be looking to take our own lives. We'll be looking in the midst of the trials and troubles to serve and honor the God of our salvation. In the pattern we find in First Peter chapter 2, Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed his soul to him who judges righteously. This is a hymn which we sing that has the words, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Holy his will abides. He leads me by the proper path. I follow where he guides. He's my God. Though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall. Therefore to him I leave it all. 
Then him goes on to say, we take content what he has sent. He sent it. We take it contentedly. His hand can turn our grief away and patiently we wait his day. It's not our right to be be in the vengeance game. God will judge. God is the one who will right the wrongs and gladly he will. That's the joy of living as a Christian, knowing that We've we've read the final chapter. It's like reading a a mystery. We don't know what the resolution is. We know what the final chapter reads. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We know what the final chapter is of the story. The The kingdom of heaven will come as a new Jerusalem down from God God will dwell with us he will be in our midst we will be forever with the Lord and so we refrain from anger we refrain from wrath God is the only one who could exercise proper judgment and he does again Jesus is the great example of meekness Moses we read that passage in the Old Testament his own siblings turned against him. And he doesn't respond with hostility against them. The poking holes in his competency to lead. We're just as good as he is any day. Besides, he married that black girl. <laughs> I don't believe that's in the Bible, but it is. As practical as that is to, to our world today. The Cushite woman, that's who be married. Can the Cushite change his skin? No. Should the Cushite be loved? Yes. Is it okay for Moses to marry her? Oh, you bet. It wasn't in the mind of his brother and sister, so he gets flack from his own siblings. And yet he's very meek, we're told, meek with him. All the people are on the face of the earth. And it was in his meekness that he didn't make it an issue. He didn't say, I've got to win this argument. Let them say what they want. The world's going to say what they want. And it's funny, it's meekness that he forsook when at one point, of course, later on, He's told to speak to a rock that the waters would come from the rock. And the former occasion, the commandment of God was to take the rod in your hand and, and strike it, and the water flowed out. And perhaps in a measure of pique at the fact that the people continued to question his leadership, to complain, to grumble, they didn't really stop. He took the rod and he struck the he he, he, he struck the rock. In a display again of self-will before God and ill-will towards the people. And the result of that was what? He was disqualified from entering into the land. The meek shall inherit the land. Now I'm not saying Moses experienced everlasting separation from the presence of God. No, but for the sake of God's purposes with respect to his covenant people, he wants them to know. He's setting them upon a war to enter into that land against the Canaanites, but they're not to become bitter, hostile, warlike people. 
There was a judgment they were to bring, but that was not to impact the reality of a character that was to reflect something of the heart of God, even against the worst of sinners. You say, look, God sent those armies in to destroy the Canaanites. Yes, but he, left them, he remain, let them remain in the land 400 years because it says in Genesis 15, the iniquity of their Amorite was not yet full. And so there's a sense in which, yeah, you see justice there, but you also see patience. You see the mercy of God even to Canaanites. Don't sell God's mercy short. Don't think because we have so, so much wickedness in the world that we have to rise up and get militias going. Let's get Christian nationalism moving. Let's make sure the people of the world know that Christians are not your placemat to walk all over. I'm not saying maybe we should allow you people to walk all over them, but I'm saying you shouldn't be responding in hostility. You don't think you can triumph through using the, the weapons of, this war, of the war that the people of the world use. In fact, later on in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not worldly. They're not what the world uses. They're mighty through God for the casting down of strongholds. We have spiritual weaponry that we use. The sword of the Spirit, that's the Word of God, the shield of faith, which we quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation. It's in this armament, spiritual armament, we fight a spiritual war, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, not against our neighbor. Not to own people with different opinions and think that we need to get nasty. We need to go online and make sure everybody really knows what the Christian position is on this, that, and the other. When you get to the place where you're too concerned about issues, then you are concerned about the gracious character God's called you to exhibit before an unlooking world. We've sacrificed something that's essential to what Christian living involves. Involves. As you see, before the people of this world are ever going to pick up a Bible and read it, they're reading you. They're reading your character. And what are you showing them? Are you showing them a bunch of bitter, angry people? That's what Christians are. Christians are a bunch of bitter, angry people. Angry this one and that one and this thing and that thing. How do they ever separate that from just the hateful people of the world? Because we're, we're emulating them. We're not to be emulating the people of the world. They're to see Christ in us. Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Come to me. Did people see anything of that in you? That you are meek and lowly in heart and you're approachable? You know, you know what, what attracted me to Christianity as a 17-year-old sinner of this world? A veritable reprobate in many minds... Look at that hippie. Look at his long hair. Look at the drugs he takes. Look at the things he does. Look at the way he lives. No hope of him ever becoming a Christian. It was the fact that Christians never sent me away. They never got angry at me. I gave them plenty of reason. Often I gave them plenty of reason. And yet they were so gentle. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I'm gentle in the midst of you. You knew what manner of men we were for your sake. Not hard-hearted, bitter people that were always able to lecture and criticize and condemn and tell you what's wrong. The people that really showed an interest in you. 
in me when our need was greatest. Since when my world began to fall apart, as people's worlds inevitably do, and I wanted somebody to blow steam at and yell at all my frustrations at, it was the Christians I did it. And you know what? They didn't even then send me away. And they prayed for me, and they prayed with me, until finally I found the language to pray myself. What do people see in you? The Beatitudes? Or just, well, we can understand that person. Because people can be angry and hostile and standing upon their views of what's right and just be unloving. But you see, we're called upon to stand upon truth and righteousness without flinching. And yet to do it in such a way that the people of the world know it's not because we hate them. It's not because we're angry at them. It's not because we want to um, dominate them, control them, uh, determine their lives for them, or put them in any other situation. But the one that they know, they have free access to us who love them, who pray for them, who care about them. We show something of the heart of Christ to them. That when their world falls apart, they will know as we've sung this morning, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. And they will know it's to Him they can turn because He's meek and He's lowly in heart and they will find rest for their souls. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that our Lord Jesus is who He is and hence He invites us the way He does. And we embrace that invitation and we come to you, Lord Jesus. We're thankful you've never scolded us. You've never berated us. You've never brought us to loathe ourselves, but that you've brought us to see ourselves. And you've brought us to learn of you. And you've brought us to learn that the ways of righteousness are ways of beauty. And you've brought us to know that the ways of truth are ways that are delightful. That the ways of holiness are that which is to be pursued above everything else. And we're thankful that it's with the gentle cords of love that you've drawn us to yourself. And you've drawn us to your ways. And you've made us to see by the power of your spirit dwelling in us that our ways are not ways of peace and good. And they're not ways that are to be pursued. But your ways are much to be preferred above all else. And so we're thankful for the way you have loved us. We're thankful for the way you have treated us. We're thankful for the way you've drawn us to yourself. We're thankful for the ways that you've taught us in ways in which meekness and gentleness has been at the forefront. We pray we would learn from you. We pray that our attitudes towards others would bear that mark of that meekness and gentleness that's filled with goodwill and that's not filled with with the self-will but it's endeavoring to show forth the praises of the God of heaven and earth who has called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We confess we're slow to learn the lessons of your grace. We're slow to just cease to live in the patterns so natural to us as sinners. We're thankful for your grace that humbles us, makes us unhappy with ourselves, that we might learn a better way, the way that you yourself have appointed for all who have come in faith, to find their refuge in you. 
So hear our prayers, bless your people, strengthen us to live to the praise of your glory, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.